How's it going, guys? Welcome to the Motor Enclave podcast, the first episode of the Motor Enclave podcast. I'm your host, Hank Johnson, one of your hosts, uh, and I am here. I'm glad to be joined by Brad Olashansky, owner and founder of the Motor Enclave, this entire project. How are we doing, Brad? I'm doing fabulous, Hank. How you doing? I'm doing great. I'm a little hot after the video we just shot outside. In case you didn't know, we're in Tampa, Florida. The summer just left us, but there's a little bit of heat um, left to leave us. So I wanted to do this first episode just to kind of get an introduction, answer some questions that I think a lot of people have regarding this project and maybe questions that will arise um, in the future, hopefully before the end of this construction project, this amazing uh, racetrack. Are you even call it a racetrack, test track? road course, off-road course, garages, private garages, offices, whatever you, whatever you want to call it, event center. Um, but I just want to sit down, talk a little bit, pick your brain on how you feel, how it started, your background a little bit. So one thing that I want to start off with is who are you, where did you come from, <laughs> and how did, to get, how did you get to where you are now? Who am I? Uh, I've had a very strange career path getting here. I'm not a real estate developer. I'm not a builder, per se. I know nothing about racing. I'm just an average, ordinary car guy who was fortunate to have an interesting career in different industries and woke up uh, in my mid-40s and said, I got to do something with my passion for cars. And what resulted was M1 Concourse in Michigan after many uh, years of figuring out the business model and now uh, the new and improved Motor Enclave in Tampa, Florida. Oh, Cool. So you mentioned your career paths. Uh, I know that you were formerly a lawyer as your first career. Tell me, tell me about that a little bit. I'm still a lawyer. Once a lawyer, always a lawyer. Okay. Um, still licensed and pay my dues in California. Uh, yeah, I was. Uh, I went to a film school undergrad and wanted to make movies. Uh, ended up in LA, where you know the movie industry is, and found out how quickly how hard it is to get a job out there. So everybody I met were lawyers. So I went to law school. I uh, went to a great school uh, that specialized in entertainment law, so I thought it'd be a good stepping stone into a, a job in the in industry, and uh, ended up working uh, in the industry. I worked at Sony and Disney and a few music companies and a law firm and a couple of marketing companies and had a phenomenal run out there for about 12 years um, and learned a lot about business and contracts and intellectual property and many things that I apply now to my my business here. Um but uh, once I had children, uh, I had twins in the year 2000, and my uh, wife and I at the time didn't want to raise our kids in L.A., so we took a chance to move further back east, ended up moving back to Michigan where I grew up, uh, where I got my love for cars early as a kid, but uh, never thought I'd ever, ever be back there and uh, ended up uh, joining a small company in the marketing space uh, doing healthcare marketing, which we grew into a, a sizable company and... Uh, had a phenomenal time building a great culture and, and learning a lot about uh, kind of uh, entrepreneurial businesses. And uh, we were fortunate to sell the business in 2008, uh, right before the world fell apart. So that was a good time, a lot of luck there, but a phenomenal company. And ended up staying for five more years working for the public company that bought us. Um, and uh, kind of got sick of you know the corporate life and wanted to go back to the entrepreneurial world, which you know early in my early days before college and law school. 
I was always an entrepreneur. I was selling t-shirts and selling candy and selling gadgets and hand buzzers and stink bombs and all kinds of things. Um, one of my friends reminded me last night how I used to sell all this stuff uh, in, in junior high gimmicks, uh, trinkets and trash. Yeah. And um, so that's uh, kind of after I ended my corporate career uh, in 2012, I wanted to build this destination for car enthusiasts. So that's kind of how we ended up where we are today. Yeah. So if you want to mention M1 Concourse a little bit, I know that that was what you did starting in 2012 up in Michigan. Yeah. Um, I've heard some stories here and there about how that project came about. If you would, like, if you want to talk about it, how did that whole process go up in Michigan? Because I know you've mentioned that you've come down to Tampa, you've learned from your mistakes that you made at M1. Um, you made some good decisions, you made some bad decisions up there as far as the business is concerned. Um, and development as well. You learned a lot in the M1 development, from what I can tell. Yeah. Um, and you brought that down to Tampa. But what can you tell us about your experience at M1? How did that come about? What what kind of uh, you know bridges did you have to cross? Hills hills did you have to climb when you were in Michigan um, and fighting for that project? Yeah, I mean M1 is really the culmination of many years of dreaming about creating a destination for car enthusiasts. Um, you know. Detroit's one of the biggest car markets in the world and huge car scene of every era from hot rods and muscle cars and modern performance cars. And and you drive up and down the street called Woodward Avenue, which is one of the most famous streets in America. It was the first paved road in America. It was the birthplace of cruising in America. And in the 50s and 60s, there were drive-ins and diners and places to go and park your car and hang out with other car people. And it all went away. And um, the activity... You know, before I started M1 was to drive your car, put your kids in the car, go get ice cream, go home. Um, and as I hung out with car people, everyone's like clamoring or dying to have a place to go, and there was no place to go. Drive-in movie theaters were all gone. Um, fairgrounds where you used to go to car shows were kind of all gone. So I thought, you know, can I create a, a destination for these people? Whether I didn't know at the time what it was going to be. I thought you know, maybe I'd build a restaurant, maybe build a fairground type, you know, place for cars and coffee events. And I did a lot of research and I flew around the world looking at different projects and saw all these amazing projects, whether it was the country club model or the private racetracks or the sanctioned racetracks or museums or theme parks or car storage businesses. And really what I discovered pretty quickly is that all those businesses generally are not great businesses financially because they're usually done by someone that's very wealthy and they say, I'm going to build the greatest racetrack and build the best golf course, the best marina. And those businesses in the passion space are usually the you know someone's hobby. They're not someone's business, and I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to lose a ton of money and just have a cool place to show my buddies. Um, but I d- discovered that the storage part of the business was really the the crux of what people needed. Everyone that had an extra car or two or three or ten yeah. had a place to keep it. You know, because of zoning restrictions in America, you could only have a three car garage in most places max. Many places two car garage. Um, and in Europe, there was the same problem. And in Europe, actually, they don't even have a garage in the first place. So if you have an extra car, it's sitting on the street. So people that have their special car usually have it in a storage facility. And these concept of a car condo started out in Germany and Switzerland and other places where you buy a garage and you own a garage and a community of other garages. And then there's other services that people build around that car dealerships, speed shops, retail stores, et cetera. Um, and when I saw that in Europe, I, I also discovered a guy in, in, a, in America did it in Minneapolis, a place called Auto Motorplex. It was a beautiful little little project, 130 units. And I said, if this guy can sell 130 units in Minneapolis, which is not even a car town per se, I should be able yeah. to sell at least as many in, in Metro Detroit. So that started the journey of building just a car 
condo community. Um, and I wasn't going to do a racetrack originally and, uh, couldn't find land, couldn't get the zoning. There was all kinds of problems. Um, you know, development is not easy task. I learned it's, it's kind of a brute force business. You got to be very patient and, and, you know, if you're honest and straightforward, you have, it takes a lot longer. So, uh, many people in the business, you know, you hear that people pay off people and it's not what I'm going to do, but, yeah. um, so as the time went on, I ended up looking at a much bigger piece of property than I wanted. It was 80 acres instead of 20 acres. And it was a former general motors factory property. And that's a whole nother, you know, to take two hours to explain the story, but let's just say it was, I was the lowest man on the totem pole when it comes to bidding for this property. And, I had to convince a government trust that was that took over these General Motors properties that I was the right guy to buy the property. So that was a long process, and um, but my pitch was very simple. It was kind of a modern interpretation, you know, basically a revitalization of an auto historic automotive factory. It's a hundred yeah. year old factory. Why are you going to turn it into a strip mall or an industrial park or a movie studio when it could be another mod, you know automotive destination right on Woodward Avenue? So that took about a year to sort of get all the paperwork figured out, and you know purchase it and there's environmental concerns and all kinds of things. And Pontiac was a challenging city because they didn't really have a form of government because they're an emergency manager control. So long story short, I, I pulled it off um, and I ended up with much more property. So I started looking at what else can I do? And I, I knew racetracks were a terrible business. It's just, it's a fun business, fun place, but they don't make money. Um, yeah. You know, the number of people that are willing to pay to drive their car or spectate at a car event is very small in the U S NASCAR formula one. Yes, but those are mega investments compared to what we're talking about here. Um, so I was just building garages and then I, when I started to talk to car companies, they all said to me, how come you don't build a racetrack? And I said, racetracks don't make money. And they said, no, you're thinking about it from a consumer's perspective. We, you know, they said we rent tracks all the time for training and ride and drives and photo shoots and content product, uh, production and all kinds of things. So I thought, well, it'd be interesting if I could build a garage community around a track because all these other places around the, around the country and around the world were either garage communities or racetracks. The problem with the racetracks is they were, they were far from where people lived, so you only attract a racing audience. And people wouldn't buy a garage because they're too far away. Um, so I thought, can I bring those two concepts together? And that's what we did. Um, and I figured out that we could have a much more approachable club membership fee because our members only want to use the track a little bit. Most of them are not into racing, but they want to drive at speed in a controlled environment. Um, so we would monetize the track through corporate rentals. And I thought it'd be all automotive. It turns out it was only 25% automotive. The rest of it was just normal businesses, doing team buildings, offsite board meetings, charity event, weddings, galas, and using cars as kind of the entertainment. So um, that was what became M1. Um, everyone told me I was crazy, it wouldn't work. It was a terrible location, all these different things. And now we've kind of helped revitalize the city of Pontiac. There's a billion dollars of new development around the, around the project. We've sold 250 garages. We've had the Detroit Auto Show move there last year to do their event called Motorbella. We've had Roadkill five years in a row, which has 40,000 plus people every year. Um, the values of the properties and the garages have gone up immensely. Um, and it's sort of been a learning lesson, um, you know, on how to operate the business, what works, what doesn't work. And you know, most of it worked. And there was things we just changed along the way in terms of the type of events we do. Um, but we do know there's no sanctioned racing. There's no car-to-car -car racing. Um, and that's a different business. That's not the business we want to be in. We're a, we're a private club paired with a public destination and a corporate event venue. And 80% of our business is driven from corporate events. Um, the reason I'm in Tampa now and the reason I have a different brand is, you know, 
um, had the opportunity. I was looking at other cities. People were calling me from all, the, all around the world saying, you should do this in Charlotte. You should do this in Bahrain. You should do this in Atlanta. And I started looking at other cities and realizing there's a much bigger opportunity outside of Detroit. Even though Detroit's got a huge car scene, we're closed four months a year because of winter. Um, you know, the, the wealth in Metro Detroit, there's plenty of it, but it's not a huge population. Um, so we started saying, you know, maybe I could do it elsewhere and talking to other people. I also figured out I didn't want to have a partner and M one had a partner, um, very challenging partnerships. And, uh, I really couldn't execute on my full vision there. So, um, I was fortunate to be able to, uh, sell my interest in the business there, which is something I never wanted to do until I realized how much bigger the opportunity is elsewhere. Um, and, you know, looking back now, it's the best thing that ever happened because, you know, one, they decided not to have partners or not to do these projects all over the country with anybody else. Um, certainly have investors that help support the project, but I can control my full destiny. Um, I can be fully responsible for the mistakes and for the things that go right. Um, and Tampa, which is now home for me, you know, which I chose based on data, uh, has proven to be a phenomenal place to live. Obviously, everyone knows Tampa's a hot place, growing like crazy, but it's just um, our location is, is really, there's nothing else like it in the world, probably. Yeah. Um, we have 200 acres instead of 80 acres. I'm attached to a private airport here. So many different reasons why Tampa's going to be incredible, and I'm, pretty, I'm sure you got other questions about the Motor Enclave, but um, I sort of, you know, M1 was my dream, but it's really now looking back is really the test case. The Motor Enclave is really the fulfillment of that dream, and you know, hundreds of other people's dreams now that are owners and members and um, really going to transform these type of businesses because we keep elevating. I thought M1 was kind of a, the gold standard and the construction we're doing here, the architecture, the features, the benefits, the amenities, there's nothing else like it in the world. No one's done all these things on one site. So we're very excited about it. And you know, maybe we'll replicate it somewhere else. Um, we're looking at that, but, you know, Tampa really is the, is, from compared to anywhere else, is, is really the perfect place. Yeah, so... You left M1 and decided to move to Tampa in what, 2018? That was the. I mean, I started working on Tampa before that, um, you know, probably a year before that. And then um, it took almost three years to get the sort of groundwork laid here and the approvals. And that's sort of, you know, what I'm fairly good at is just keeping my, you know, doing grinding away. And yeah. when everyone's looking at you saying you're out of your mind, you're yeah, wasting you your go money. Psycho. It will never happen. I hear that every day. Um, you just put, I just block out the noise and realize if it does happen, I'll have something no one else has. Yeah. Um, so it took a long time. It was a very challenging environment here in Tampa from a development standpoint. Um, but we got over the hurdles and we're going to be open shortly. And uh, as you know, you know, and other people know, we're, we've sold more garages here than M1 in seven years. And M1 was the largest in the world by far. Yeah. Um, so I don't really find anybody else going to catch up to us in terms of scale. Not, any not anytime soon, especially with the way that construction costs are now and, you know, yeah. one thing that I've noted since being here, and I know that I'm just the marketing guy, but I see all the construction that's happening around. I'm taking pictures and videos of, you know, the concrete walls being poured and lifted up and all the truckloads of dirt that come in day after day after day. And, you know, by the time this video is out, Hurricane Ian has already passed us. And I came by here on Friday and you even mentioned that, you know, just because of rain, we've lost, you know, a thousand truckloads worth of dirt, supposedly. Yeah. Um, and you're having to recoup that cost and um, the way that inflation and shipping costs and manufacturer costs have affected the project. You had a little bit of foresight when it came to the construction and started amassing a lot of your construction materials beforehand. 
Um, so I think that was put into a good light. Do you have anything that you want to mention about that? Like, did you foresee something like this happening yeah, years ago? Say, or was it just like a precaution? No, I think, you know, when the business environment changed with material increases caused by COVID, you know, legitimate ones early on, you know, because factories were shut down, workers weren't coming to the factory and they had to charge more because they had, you know, had to hire other people or, or less, you know, they had less productivity. So if you only make half the amount of items, you got to charge twice as much. That sort of spun into everybody and their brother charging more for everything and taking advantage of it, even though 90% of the companies never had any issues with COVID, um, which drove up all the craziness we see here. What I knew from all my careers and jobs is that once prices go up, they don't come down for a long time because owners of all these companies are making so much money. Why would you ever lower the cost until there's a crisis and you have to lower your cost because yeah. no one's buying. So, you know, the bets I made early on were truly gambles. I mean, everyone, I'm not a genius when it comes to predicting, you know, commodity prices and things, but everyone was saying, you should wait. Don't, why would you buy all your steel and all your air conditioners and all your windows and all your doors? And I said, well, if I don't, then I will. And I, I've got, I at the time I believed I had solid momentum. We'd sold the first 30 garages or so. I said, I either got to put the gas pedal down and bet on, you know, the fact it's all going to work out. And if it doesn't, it's going to be a massive disaster. But hey, if it works, it's going to be a massive success. So, um, and, but we had a lot of kind of stage gate process along the way where we had mitigate the risk. We weren't biting off all the, you know, you put deposits down. You didn't, you know, you, you reserve materials. You didn't have to pay for everything at one time. So there's a lot of strategy that goes into it. Um, so we were very fortunate, and of course, things doubled. I mean, we're 30-something million dollars over budget uh, from original budget. Fortunately, our sales momentum is so high, and we're four years ahead of plan, and we've been able to raise our price along the way. So we've been, you know, you know we're in a good position, um, but couldn't predict the fact that even this long, the materials are, every week are still going up. Again, most of it's bluffing by salespeople and mm -hmm. ownership of companies, and I just don't play that game. Like I know that the materials are there. There's definitely lead time issues, um, but pricing is really in very rare circumstances. Yeah. The real the, the increases that people claim are going to go up has not have not happened. It's a lot of bluffing, and it's you know business is a game of poker. You know I'm not very good at poker uh, per se because I've really never played it uh, at length, um, like my son. But um, this is a game of you know you gotta look someone in the eye and you got to tell are you, are they, when they're playing chicken, you know, are they real or are they not real? Yeah. Um, and you got to make strategic bets. So fortunately those bets have come in our favor. We've had, you know, definitely things that have not in terms of cost. And, um, but with the momentum of Tampa and the money in the system from COVID and a phenomenal, you know, the way we, the way we treat our customers and the, and the product, the quality of our product, like I could have cheaped out and done this. I could have saved $20 million if I want to build it cheap, but, it's not our business model. Like I'm, I'm a, I plan on being a member owner here forever and I don't want customers coming to me and complaining that it was, you know, terribly built. So I yeah. overdo stuff that no other developer would spend money on because it's what I want. Yeah. So and it works. like the, I guess the blessing in disguise and not even really a disguise at this point is you said you're four years ahead of schedule and the fact that you've sold now, I think today there's 14 units left out of 300 or so yeah. units and the construction isn't even done yet. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're going to sell out before we open, um, which is crazy because, you know, this is, it's great to be able to, to, you know, focus on execution, not just sales. Sales is such a major job. Um, but, 
you know, it's, it's, it is mind blowing that we're this far ahead of the game, but now we can focus on having amazing customer experiences and corporate events and all the different activities here. Um, and you know, maybe we'll squeeze out a few more garages. We're trying to find some uh, additional development land, but it's very challenging because we've used up so much and we've got a lot of site constraints here with wetlands and ponds and all the Florida stuff that goes on here that are, that's unique to me. But you know, if it was, if it was, you know, it's going to be the most beautiful site of its kind in the world, but you know, normal developers would scrape the whole land and just put pavement everywhere. And it'd be great because I could have a 10 times bigger facility, but this is going to be very unique and it's not going to be ever expanding. That's the other thing. When people buy here, they know there's not going to be thousands of garages and thousands, you know, this is a very, you know, kind of tailored experience and there can only be so many units. Maybe we can squeeze another 50 in if we're lucky. Yeah. And that's it. So, um, and like I said early on, like once it's approved, which, you know, we're, we're approved and it took a long time, but no one else is going to build one anywhere nearby because one is the costs are so high now, but you'll never get another, you know, county to go through the process. Like no one's going to want to build one close by. I mean, some guys are building one in Orlando an hour and something miles away, but it's a totally different kind of concept. Yeah. It's more of a, just a private racetrack, which, uh, you know, and they all try and now say they're going to be like us and do garages and all the stuff and haven't really seen it pan out. Um, cause the amount of investment it takes, uh, is significant and the bets that people are not willing yeah. to make. And the brain damage. Yeah, I mean that's what I say. I say I'm in the I'm in the brain damage business. Uh, yeah, you know it's just you got to be able to deal with a lot of a lot of complexity and people that really are not there to help you at all. They just want to charge you and find ways to trip you up. And yeah, uh, but after you're open, you know the rest of it's uh, a little different environment. They all all the people that give you trouble will come by here, want to hang out with us. So they want to be a part I, I've been of it. Through, I've been through that drill before. Yeah. So some things that owners and corporate visitors and just event visitors in general and the public as well can expect when they come to the motor enclave is, you know, a 1.6 mile Tilkey design track, you know, a hundred acres of off-road courses with multiple courses across that hundred acres, you know, a 37,000 square foot event center and a two acre track pad, vehicle dynamics pad. Um, so I guess I would want to first mention Tilkey. A lot of people probably don't know who Herman Tilkey is. Um, <clears throat> how many F1 tracks has he designed? Is it I think what? Designed like 23, and then 22, tracks. I mean, no one has designed that. Like, literally that's like 80 to 90% of them. Um, you know, just a former race car driver, German engineer, architect, uh, who built a niche around doing garage or doing racetracks. Um, most of their work has been professional, you know, formula one grade circuits and they really were not playing in this private club space. They did one project here called Atlanta Motorsports Park, which is a friend of ours. Yeah. Um, great track, great, you know, place, um, who are now doing garages after many, many years and you know that I'm glad they're successful with that. Um, but I couldn't afford Tilkey in Michigan and you know, they were very adamant about not doing any of these less high profile projects. Now I think that over after M1, I think they said these are actually more high profile than a lot of the business we do. Um, but obviously we couldn't support the the cost of a, you know, formula one, formula one track sometimes cost a billion dollars when our track is like, you know, $10 million. Um, so over building a relationship over many years with them, um, you know, they, they agreed to do it, uh, and they've been a pleasure to work with and came down to a price that I could afford. But again, I didn't need them, honestly. I mean, we're very happy with the design that came out of it and it's going to be a phenomenal track, but, um, the, you know, it's, it's overkill for what we're, we're doing. We're not doing sanctioned racing here. 
his lights are off here. He's got to wave, wave down. Like, must start. <laughs> oh, there you go. Um, so uh, it's like having Jack Nicholas's name on your golf course. Yeah. And it's not a need to have. It's a want. I thought it would be cool. Yeah. And really, another for me, a lot of stuff I do is about how much can I learn. I mean, I, there's you could make money a lot easier ways than doing this business. Yeah. And I'm confident after my various careers that I can make a living. Thank God. Um, but you know, working with someone like Tilkey, I've learned a, a ton, and also pushing Tilkey to do things that they're not used to doing, which is dialing back things because I don't, you know. They're used to a billion dollar build and they have drainage everywhere and, and you know, catch fence everywhere and stuff like that. We, we couldn't afford. Um, so it's really working closely with someone like that to say, like, this is our real business model and this is how we want to build it and how do we compromise in different things. And they, they've been a phenomenal partner uh, to work with. Um, so that was really another dream is to work with someone like that and from a, just a personal experience standpoint. And I think it's going to show off in the driving experience as well, even though our track in Michigan is great and we used a great designer. Um, you know, and Tilkey's got con is controversial for many places. You know, there's always these Formula One critics and they're like, oh, the track's not great. Mm -hmm. There's always going to be naysayers. In this case, we've had pro drivers drive our track already in, in, in simulation and everyone's very excited about it. I would say I'm not the guy to ask a question about whether the track's good or bad. You know, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I've, I've literally been on the track in M1 maybe a dozen times. Yeah. Um, it's fun, but it, my personality is that I have to do it every single day, and I have to do this every single day. So one day when I'm retired, maybe I'll, I'll become an amateur race car driver. But even the I'm more into the cars and the hanging out with car people than I am getting behind the yeah, wheel. You're a social guy. Racing. Yeah. So you don't have to say a little blurb about the off-road course, something you haven't really treaded ground on yet before. You've done the event center. You've done the dynamics pad. You've done the garages. Off-road course. You're going into it, not necessarily blind, but you've got all, all this land to play with. And you say, okay, this is what I want to do. Who do you call? And like, who do you have in charge of it? Because I know that you've kind of built a team from the ground up. You've brought a couple uh, close friends and partners from M1 with you over here. So I guess first, like, tell me a little bit about your endeavors with the off-road course. But tell me more about the team that you're building here at the Motor Enclave. Yeah, I mean, first on the course, so what I learned in Michigan was, you know, we only had 80 acres and we filled it up with garages and a track in the event center. Um, we had a ton of car clients and customers who wanted to, you know, rent the facility for off-roading, but we had no room for our off-road track. We built a little one for some of the car shows, but um, that's the fastest growing segment in the, in the motorsports space and the automotive space. Everyone's going, at, you know, moving towards SUVs. Um, so I said, you know, I got to have some feature for that. Fortunately, by accident, this property, you know, is the perfect balance of flat land for the garages and the racetrack, and then very, you know, land with a very good topography on the sort of north third of the property, about 100 acres, um, which would be perfect for off-roading. Uh, and actually, they, they dredged the canal. There's a giant bypass canal, and they used all the dredgings to put it on top of the land there. That's why there's, you know, the kind of topography we have. Um, so, uh, you know, I wanted to do it, you know, something, you know, there's all kinds of places you can go drive your car thousands of miles just on nat natural trails, but I wanted to really build a purpose-built off-road experience with multiple features for, you know, slow and tactical driving and high-speed driving and and really for corporate entertainment thrills and for my owners to have another activity to do um, and for public activation. So um, 
first started working with uh, Steve Gordon Air. Steve does all the camp Jeeps and a lot of the automotive programs. I met him in Michigan and then um, was fortunate to bring on to our team uh, Chester Steens, who's a former Special Forces. Uh, we hired him out of the uh, Special Forces uh, transition program after 21 years in, in, the, in the Army. And then um, we hired, just hired uh, Chris Duplessis from, uh, auto, uh, from Monticello Motor Club, uh, who's a phenomenal addition, who ran the track at Monticello, built the whole off-road experience there. Um, as our as our director of motorsports, obviously we brought a few of the former teammates from uh, M1 and guys like you, new people to the fold. But you know that's the you know you said I'm just the marketing guy, but that's not the way we treat our people. Is we're all a team. Um, for me, culture is number one. Uh, having you know we have a lot of fun and we work very hard. It's same as my whole theory about I can make money lots of other ways. We work very. You, you could have a nine to five jobs jo- job and probably make the same money or more. Um, but here we're having time of our lives doing it and, and we have fun together. And, you know, I was trying to hire people that are, you know, a cultural fit, same work ethic, want to really do something cool. Um, once you see, you know, you haven't even experienced the customers that much yet, but like, you know, we're, we're we've got so many different audiences. We've got these garage owners who are literally the, there's the happiest people on earth because they're doing something they've never been able to do before. Um, in privacy and enjoy themselves and not apologize for having money and all kinds of things. Then you got the corporate events, which could be anyone from the janitor to the CEO coming for corporate entertainment uh, or meeting and get put a, get in a race car and do a vid- get a video of it to go home. Um, to the public comes for cars and coffee or driving schools or track days or off roading. Um, you know, I would say that we have something for everybody. You can come for cars and coffee. It's not only free. We're gonna give you a donut and a coffee for free. Um, you can buy a t-shirt for 10 bucks. You can take a driving school for, you know, or come to an open track day for 400 bucks. You can take a driving school for 500, a thousand dollars. You can rent the facility for 20 or 30 grand, or you can buy a garage for 300 grand to a million dollars. So there's something for every single spectrum of the car enthusiast market. When all the other facilities are really closed only for the affluent audience, um, because they're a private racetrack and the people that can afford 50 grand a year or $500,000 to join the club is a very limited audience. Certainly our garages are a high entry point and you know, you've got to have some means and some of the garages are five buddies by together. So it's not all, you know, people with significant means, but most of them are able to write a check and we, have, we don't do financing. So we, we sold $115 million, $115 million of the garages all on cash basis to people with no financing. So it probably makes us the, one of the largest, if not the largest real estate sales project in Florida um, other than some of these billion dollar towers in Miami, but you know, to sell 275 units in a year and a half in Tampa of white shell space is crazy. Um, that was, that's what blows my mind the most, but you know, back to the off-road thing, it's going to be awesome. Um, and a new addition and something, and also back to the learning thing is it's a whole new thing. I got to learn and work with a team to learn. And we're trying to, you know, we, we do everything in, you know, most people are like, I want to build the greatest off-road track in the world. They throw a ton of money at it, and then they got to change it two years later. So we're doing parts of it, and we'll test and learn, and we'll if we got to change something, we'll change it. We're not doing it all at once. Um, and our customers will love it. Whatever we do, they will love. I'll guarantee that. And then we can adapt and change based on what the needs are for the business. Um, but the most important thing is we're always focused on it, running it like a real business. This is not a playground. It's a playground for our customers, but for us, it's... And this is a challenge with hiring people is we, you know, 
everybody wants to work here, but everybody thinks this is I get to race cars all day and screw around all day. And I learned that in Michigan, like we all have to understand sort of this is, we're trying to operate as a real business so it can actually provide a return to our investors and make sure it's viable long-term. Like this is not a, you know, this is not Brad trying to blow a bunch of money and have me, you know, show to my friends, like I built my own racetrack, which is most of the places out there. Um, and then they overspend like every dollar we spend, we're analyzing and uh, you've seen it like, and unfortunately that's every day, every day, like we dig out of a hole to save a hundred grand and then there's a $200,000 mistake that or a problem that comes up. Um, like the dirt you mentioned, which is like, you know, who could expect that the storm, which supposedly caused no, caused no damage to us, you know, the dirt from the racetrack eroded, you know, washed away into the wetlands and we can't get it back. So more trucks of dirt. So, um, just a lot of cool stuff and the, and the off road is going to be an amazing thing, which I'm, I'm very excited about because I love racetracks. I love getting in my car before a couple laps, but I, I'm like, how many times can I go around the off road? I can take a truck. I can take a side by side. I can, you know, get a throw ride. I can take my, you know, take my kids or family in, in a, in a vehicle, which you can't do on a racetrack generally. So it's just a much bigger opportunity, I feel like. And that market is just exploding. Yeah. So you're learning new things with the off-road course. We talked about Toki. We talked about the garages. We talked about construction and how you came we from didn't talk, We didn't talk about the best part. What's the best part? The resort pool we're building. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I mean, we don't have a pool in Michigan. Uh, some of these other projects have little rinky-dink pools and gyms and things that nobody uses. Um, but after starting, you know, after our sales momentum started, I had a bunch of my customers from Michigan that actually, I, we have 22 people or 25 people that have garages in M1 that bought garages down here because they love the experience so much and they want to be here in the wintertime mm -hmm. uh, so they can live it kind of both times a year. And many of them said, if you got, if you had a pool, my wife would support this uh, and I could bring the kids. And as I thought about it, you know, I thought it would be a great amenity one is to really create a gathering place because the garages are amazing. That's their sort of, that's their clubhouse and they all go from garage to garage. We don't really have, even have a member clubhouse, but having a central congregation point outside of the track pit lane where we gather when there's track events um, was very appealing to me. And, you know, I've been fortunate to travel to a lot of cool places and resorts and things. And, um, you know, I wanted to build the ultimate resort pool here at the property and make it a place where we can really hang out outside of the track sessions and the garages and like everything else I've done, I'm gone a little overboard. So, uh, you know, we're now building a $2 million pool. That's going to be insane. Oh it's going to have a 35 person fire pit. It's got a bar and a grill. It's got a, the literally one of the, uh, first platforms you can drive a car on to be floating on water. Um, it's got a sun shelf with shades lounges in the water. It's got crazy lighting and landscaping, and it'll be a showpiece uh, for the project. It'll be a showpiece by itself, but um, it also becomes a venue for events. So we yeah. want to do a cocktail party there for General Motors. We can do that. We want to do a car unveiling for a local car dealership. We can do that with a car floating on the water. So yeah. uh, again, business-focused, great, you know, building it for my customers, but always thinking about how do we monetize it so that we don't just have a, mm -hmm. a depreciating asset that nobody wants to pay for. Yeah, and I've I've laughed a little bit about that section, um, particularly between buildings four, five, and six. I can put the map on the screen for those that are watching a video. But <laughs> I've heard that some of the owners have uh, donned it the trouble triangle, the triangle of, of trouble, because three of trouble. buildings that are kind of in a triangle shape, 
with a pool in the middle. And uh, several of the owners have kind of created the moniker of the Triangle of Trouble, and they've got their own logo being worked on and T-shirts. And uh, they always say that, you know, th- those owners in those buildings, four, five, and six, will be part of the Triangle of Trouble, which is just a cute way of saying uh, they're going to have a lot of fun there. Wow. And one thing I did forget to mention, I heard the, the plane go over earlier, and it reminded me, we're right next to Tampa Executive Airport. And we are supposed to have our own private entrance. We have to our the own airport. private entrance. It's already there. We have our airport actually had to move their entrance because we were very fortunate to learn that we had an easement on the road that they had blocked off previously. Um, and we expect to be a great partner with the airport. We're we're looking at you know bringing traffic in. Um, I mean, we're you know we'll truly be able to arrive and drive from your airplane or corporate jet or small hobby plane um, directly in the property. Uh, so we're very excited about that. And we actually have sold a handful of units. I don't think it's a big part of our business, but we sold a handful of units to people that don't live in Tampa that have planes that want to come from Boca or come from Naples and they're motorsports people. And, you know, what better way to fly their plane here or be flown in their plane here and then uh, literally pick them up in a golf cart five minutes, you know, five minutes down the street in the community. And um, it's going to be very cool. And also having uh, an airport next, next to us and a freeway on the other side, I-75, with the busiest intersection in the country, you know, there's already some existing noise, so it uh, helps for anybody that's going to complain later about noise, which we always expect that. But we try to be good neighbors, and I think the you know the, the county and the community recognize that this is the perfect site. You couldn't build residential here. You're not going to. This is this is actually the site was for sale for years and years and years, because who wants to build anything between an airport and a freeway? Well, I do. <laughs> I mean, there's yeah. very few people like us that are like this is the dream site. Um, turns out it's the most challenging site, probably the worst piece of dirt in you know the area based on it's got no utilities we're bringing utilities in from miles away um it's got very challenging soils there's wetlands i had to, we had to bring in twenty thousand trucks of dirt to bring up the water you know the, the ability to have drainage on the site mm-hmm. just crazy crazy stuff that costs millions and millions of dollars but again once now nobody wanted the site now that we put all the infrastructure and in, everybody says it's the greatest site in the world we'll buy it from you and i'm like well we're too far along to sell i mean could probably make it way more money selling the property but we're too far along and this is going to be an amazing place. Um, yeah. And the coolest thing about these projects, you know, I often think about is, you know, the legacy, you know, that you and when you're in the real estate development business, especially this is kind of experiential is the stuff that we're building is going to last for who knows, hundreds of years. I mean, this uh, concrete buildings, you know, have life, you know, all the stuff built in New York is hundreds plus years old, still standing people living in skyscrapers that were built hundred years ago. Um, so, you know, whether this is repurposed one day into something else, I, you know, who knows? Um, but you know, the, the, the thought that we're building it and people will own them and have, you know, great experiences and memories here and their kids and families and new owners. That's the best part about it. Yeah. So I want to hear a little bit about your unit along with your collection and maybe a few cards that you're going to keep here and then we'll, we'll end. We're running a little long now, but um, you have unit number one, am I right? Of course. In building number one, <laughs> um, uh, uniquely shaped unit as well. You, you have a few little quirky things you're going to put in there, but I kind of want to hear what your plan is for your unit and maybe a couple cards that you're looking forward to having here once it's completed. Yeah. So, um, my unit is actually 101 because uh, we had to create numbers that would work for the fire department. So it's actually one, but it, they ought to be 101, 201, 301. Um, and not a huge garage, um, you know, about 1,600 square feet ground floor, which is probably 
medium size, a little bit more than a medium sized garage. There's plenty of garages here that are 2,400, 3,400, 5,000 feet. There's one that's 14,000 feet. Um, but it's kind of got, I'll save some of the surprises for later. It's got some, you know, hidden doors and hidden garage doors and, and unique stuff. Um, it's multi-level, so it's really th- over three levels inside. And, you know, some of them are three, four steps. Some of them are eight steps. Um, and, just, you know, I'm, I'm big on the visual entertainment side, you know, kind of making it. This one, my, my garage in Michigan um, is very rustic and kind of packed with collectibles and signs and typical garage stuff. This is going to be more minimalist, um, modern architecture and clean. You know, I'm trying to get rid of all my clutter in my life and, um, you know, leave that in my garage in Michigan. Uh, but I'm planning on, because I'm living here full time, uh, moving most of my stuff down here cars wise. Uh, and I have a very eclectic collection that's growing and not what people would think. You know, I've got, I do have modern sports cars. I've got the new MC20. I've got a F12 Ferrari. Um, but I'm really into the kind of, low riders of the fifties and sixties. I've got a 51 Pontiac chieftain and I'm building a 65 Impala right now. That's a true low rider kind of car that bounces five feet in the air and drives on three wheels. Um, and, um, always looking for new, unique, quirky stuff. So, you know, I'm looking for a BMW Isetta right now. Um, you know, which is a very unique car. Uh, what is that? I've never heard of that. It's like the little bubble car and the door opens in the front. You ever oh, seen yeah. I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Like, you ever see that TV show for it's called but Urkel? The guy, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like that kind of car. Um, I like micro cars. I've never bought one, but I'd love to have a micro car collection. I think they're sweet. The, the cost of those cars have gone insane. They would cost more than a normal car. Uh, I just bought a 1988 Supra. My first car was a 86 and a half yeah. Supra. And we I actually was, picked that up down yeah. the street from here. So I've got, I uh, just got that. I'm very excited about that car. Um, so I mean, that's the beauty of the car people. I would say like, you never know what's in the garages here and it's not all Ferrari owners. You know, people buy what they dreamed of having as a kid, couldn't have, or want to buy the car they always wanted. Some of them have their grandfather's car they just restored, um, and plenty of modern sports cars as well. So, um, that's, that's the model is like in behind the garage door. You never know what's there and it's their own personal space. And for me, it's going to be my kind of, you know, cool execution of some, some design that I have come up with and garages, you know, garage downstairs and man cave upstairs and office uh, as well. And, um, I've got a, you know, kind of secret door into a movie theater and an adjacent unit and things like that. So very excited about that. And for me, I really use my garage as the, as an entertainment, uh, place for all my customers. So all the garage owners here, I, I host a lot of events and parties. We're building a huge party deck outside my garage. Um, and that's why I'm in it. I love the customers. I love to hang out with them and I'm not a fly by night developer that sells it to them and moves on to the next one. So yeah, everyone becomes my friends. I mean, that's why, I mean, the, 90% of the investors in this project were garage owners in Michigan. So I would say that that's, you know, people say, you know, should I buy a garage here? I'm like, well, the testament to my success is that I, all the money I raised pretty much just came from customers in Michigan. So they didn't like it and weren't happy. They wouldn't have done that. And the fact that we sold 20 something garages to garage owners, if that doesn't say at all, if they've owned a garage in Michigan, have zero connection to Florida. That's, you know, so, yeah, uh, but very excited about the garage. Um, you know, like everything else here, the, the cost to build it out is insane. And yeah. everything's like numbers don't make sense. So it's a little challenging, but we'll work through it. And, uh, hopefully have the garage done, I would say, finish by April is the goal. I mean, I'd like to be sooner, but who knows? I mean, finish, finish. So hopefully will, the, out, the, the building shell will be done probably in about a month. Okay. Yeah. Cool. 
Um, one last little question. There were talks, and I know you had looked in Nashville and maybe Orlando and places like that yeah. before. Where do those projects stand right now with the way that thing, things are as far as cost of construction and yeah. real estate costs and your project? So we had, we had identified kind of as our first three projects. My goal is to build a bunch of these. Um, some, with, some with just garages and some with tracks. So our goal was to build Tampa with the whole shebang with the track and the off-road and the event center and everything. And then two other projects without tracks, one being Columbus, Ohio, and another one being uh, Nashville, Tennessee. Columbus kind of came out of the gate first, right when COVID hit. Bad timing. The market really shifted dramatically. We had a ton of interest, and then everybody that was going to buy a garage like, we're buying a condo in Florida. So we put that project, we really actually put on hold, and then we decided not to do it there because as I spent more time in Tampa, I realized I want to be in good weather climates. The weather limiting factor for your business is not good in the car business. Yeah, because so. you were only operating, what, nine months out of the yeah, year at Michigan? Yeah. Correct. Um, and then Nashville, uh, we have been working on for several years. It's just a garage community, but I wanted to build kind of a huge garage community, 200 garages, which would be, you know, the biggest anywhere without a track. Um, we found great property, and we were literally in zoning hell for the last two years and had two failed zonings after it should have been a slam dunk. And Nashville is very challenging. It would be a great market. We have we had 900 people sign up on our website interested in garages. I would sell out in a second. Um, and the problem is land costs are so high. Uh, urban sprawl is so fast growing there, so they don't want anything that's not residential. And even as soon as you say garages, even without a racetrack, they think it's like mini storage, which it's not. And all these growth areas are rural areas with governments that don't have a clue about how to, you know, plan for strategic growth. Like this project should be a dream. They should be begging me to come to these communities because we, you put 200 units that are non-residential on a site, small site, 200 units, all huge taxpayers and don't use the schools, don't use barely any utilities, pay crazy taxes and they're never really there that often. It's like a marina. And why wouldn't you want that? And you can literally hide it in a, property behind an industrial park and everyone's thrilled. Well, they think it's like storage and it's going to draw terror. I mean, I, remember I went to public hearings in, in Nashville and they're like, you're going to have all these guys riding fast down the road and doing burnouts. And we don't want our community destroyed by these crazy people. I'm like, first of all, they're all people with money who are going to come spend their money in your community at your restaurants and your stores and your shops and pay lots of taxes. Mm -hmm. um, so we're still fighting the fight. Uh, Nashville's still on our list. We're working on Orlando uh, also because Orlando's closer to here and it could be a nice feeder for the track. So, you know, there's projects that are under sort of in, in development. Um, could happen a week from now. It could take two more years, but we're patient uh, and we won't just do it to do it. Um, we get called all the time for different sites. So we're there's about six projects we're looking at right now. Um, but again, back to Tampa, this thing is going to be such a big project with so much going on that you know i don't have to worry about doing any more projects right now because we got our hands full with this one and if an opportunity arises that works works we'll do it um and everyone and a brother says they're opening garage communities and racetracks and claims are like the motor enclave and tries to tell everyone why they're gonna be better than us and i would yeah. say god bless you if you can make it work i was the underdog i never bet against the underdog but you know make it happen but you know the one thing I don't like is everybody copies us. You know, that's a flattering, but also they use our actual materials and steal our name and use our photos on their website. And it's like, come on, you know, do the hard work, be yeah. original and, and make it happen on your own. Like, you know, um, so uh, that's part of, part of business though. Yeah. Well, cool. I just want to say 
Thank you for taking your time. I know you and I are stuck in this construction trailer most most <laughs> of the time every day, even though I think you're about to go to go to Italy on a little driving driving ex expedition. Ex yes. exhibition. What do you call it? <laughs> experience. Experience. Driving experience. Motor Enclave supercar experience. This is gonna be our second year. We did it last year. Um, I expect it to be a, an annual event, if not twice a year, where we allow our customers and also friends um, of the business that aren't owners per se. Uh, we take them to Europe and we drive, you know, supercars. We supply the cars and we stay at phenomenal hotels and go to great restaurants and we go to the fact car factories and we race on a racetrack one day and and just have the best uh, time and. While it's work for me, it's it's a nice break, and yeah. uh, obviously, you know, I'm not complaining about going to Italy uh, uh, in October. And um, but again, it's another way to deliver experiences to people. You know, we're not just doing it here; we try and extend the brand other places. And um, like the water enclave, the water enclave, we can talk about that another podcast. But yeah. it's another idea we have is to uh, create a boat uh, business because boating's so big in Tampa, but most people don't want to own the nice boat. Um, so that really. That really grew out of me wanting to have a nice boat, but not wanting to pay for it. Yeah. And <laughs> um, not wanting to be the guy to complain about his boat all day. So yeah. we'll see. Um, that has tremendous interest from our members. And um, uh, we're excited about that. But again, step by step, day by day, and uh, try and figure it out. Uh, but we're uh, having the time of our lives here. And we're glad that you're part of the team, Hank. You're not just the marketing guy. Cool. Yeah. Well, again, thank you for taking your time to do this. Um, I hope you have a good time in Italy. Thank you. I know we ran a little bit long, and this is not going to be the first or last. Or this is the first. This isn't going to be the last episode uh, we do this year. Hopefully, I'm going to be able to introduce uh, the general public and the people that follow us to the rest of the team, like yeah. introduce some of the personalities like Chris and Brent and Christine and Chaz and Winchester and all the people that and are some making more customers. Yeah, and making this thing happen. Yeah, seeing the cool things and the outs and secrets and you know stuff that you think would bore would be boring like the construction project to the you know multi million dollar cars that are going to be in these garages. So I really look forward to it. And again, thanks for taking your time and uh, thank you for a wonderful first episode. Thank you so much.